Okay, members, you're all very welcome to a meeting of the Justice Committee, and can I, at the outset, wish you all a happy new year. Um, if you can do any um, changes to your electronic devices for folks that are near microphones and so on, um, now is the point at which any declarations of interest related to any business should be declared. Um, if there's no declarations of interest, then we will proceed. With apologies from Gordon Dunn, MLA, uh, and we are then joined by uh, the Deputy Chair of the Committee, Linda Dillon, uh, Beatty, Sinead Bradley, Gemma Dolan and Emma Rogan, all via the Starleaf uh, facility, and you're all welcome to the meeting. And I'll ask Christine now um, to advise members if anyone has uh, given their vote under the appropriate standing order. Christine? In accordance with Standing Order 1156, Gordon Dunn has delegated his vote to the Chairperson, Paul Given. And Gemma Dolan and Emma Rogan have delegated their votes to the Deputy Chairperson, Linda Dillon, in the event that they lose their Starleaf connection. Okay, thank you. Um, draft minutes then that were held on the 17th of December. There are pages 5 to 9 of the meeting pack. And if members are content that they are a true reflection of proceedings um, that was held, then I will sign them accordingly. Are members agreed? Agreed. Okay, thank you. Matters arising. Um, couple of items just. There's a letter from the Minister of Finance providing an update on the position regarding the draft budget 2021-22 uh, to the Committee of Finance uh, on the 22nd of December and that correspondence is on page 11 of the meeting pack and members are just asked to note uh, this position. Item two is a letter from the Minister of Justice regarding COVID-19 in the Northern Ireland Prison Service. The Minister um, provided correspondence on the 9th of January. Um, in respect to that issue, the relevant correspondence again is on pages 12 to 13 and that is there for noting. Uh, another letter from the Minister in respect of commencement provisions of the Coronavirus Act 2020 that relate to mental health, pages 3 to 4 of the table pack. The Minister has written to advise that it, it is necessary for the mental health provisions in this Act to be switched on again as soon as possible given the pressures currently being experienced by health trusts. The commencement of both health and justice related provisions will be taken forward by the Department of Health, which is likely to be held in, uh, likely to take place in March. The duration of the provisions will be kept under review and the Minister will then keep the committee updated. So that is information there um, for noting. Agenda item uh, four is the protection of the police, uh, public uh, courts and sentencing Bill. It is by way of a proposed legislative consent motion then for us to consider. Officials from the department are joining the committee via the Starleaf facility and that's to provide uh, a proposed, uh, that's to provide a brief, briefing on the proposed LCM in respect of this issue. Um, so the relevant papers are at pages 15 to 28 of your meeting pack and uh, at this stage I'm going to be handing over uh, to Moira Campbell. Um, and if Moira, um, I will let you, Moira, introduce your team. And if you then can give us a, a briefing in respect of this LCM, then there'll be some questions from members afterwards. So hopefully, Moira, you can hear us okay. Hi, Chair, and uh, just checking, can you hear me okay? Yes, we, we can hear you fine with no visual, but um, that's okay, we can hear you. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Um, well, I'll start by introducing who's uh, with me, particularly if you, you don't have a visual. I'm joined today by uh, Brian Jimmick, who's the um, Head of Criminal Justice Policy and Legislation Division. 
William Triplo and Joanne Dostigier, who are also part of um, Policing Policy and Strategy Division. Um, and I'd like to start, Chair, by thanking you and the committee for uh, your willingness to take this item of business, uh, which was a, a quite short notice. Um, that's really because um, we are working to very tight timescales um, set for us by the Home Office and the Ministry of Justice, who are jointly taking this bill through Westminster. And I think someone has just figured out how to turn the camera on, so hopefully you can see us now. Um, these, so there are three unrelated matters in this bill that engage the legislative consent motion. Um, I'm going to speak to two of those. Firstly, the amendments to the Crime Overseas Production Order Act, and secondly, the provisions relating to the National Driver Offender Retraining Scheme. Uh, and then I was proposing to hand over Brian just to say a few brief words about the provisions relating to the management of sex offenders. So, uh, starting with the Crime Overseas Production Order Act, uh, members may recall that this is a, a UK-wide act with provisions which relate to both reserved and local matters. Uh, and just briefly, the act creates a standalone legal regime for UK law enforcement agencies and prosecuting authorities to obtain electronic data directly from overseas communication service providers for the purposes of criminal investigations and prosecutions through applying for an overseas production order. The development of the Act was a prerequisite for the UK to progress a data access agreement with the USA, which will enable UK law enforcement and criminal justice agencies access to information held by service providers who process, create, store or communicate electronic data on behalf of UK persons. It will also enable the UK to enter into similar agreements with other international partners. The Act will be commenced for North Ireland in February and the PSI have been working with the Home Office regarding plans for implementation. The Home Office has advised that during the implementation planning some practical issues were highlighted that uh, required them to make some legislative amendments. Uh, firstly, an amendment to the Act is required to allow appropriate officers to access and obtain communications data that is associated with the content data, for instance, details of who sent an email, the date and time it was sent, and from what IP address. A further amendment will allow orders to be served by a third party. Currently, an overseas production order is required to be served by the Secretary of State for England, Wales, and Northern Ireland, or by the Lord Advocate for Scotland. This merges the process in mutual legal assistance in which the Home Secretary and Lord Advocate perform a role in both outgoing and incoming requests. The proposed amendment will provide the Home Secretary with the flexibility to delegate tasks related to the serving of an overseas production order to an appropriate body. For example, one that has the required technical and secure capability to transmit data of this kind. The final amendment will rectify an omission in the original Act. Um, during the parliamentary process, an amendment was inserted that requires a judge to be satisfied before approving the overseas production order that the electronic data requested is likely to be relevant evidence. However, a consequential amendment wasn't included at the time to make reference to this relevant evidence test. Turning then to the National Driver Offender Retraining Scheme, which is uh, sometimes also referred to as ENDORS, members will be familiar that with the arrangements that we already have in place, uh, whereby somebody caught speeding can, in certain circumstances, undergo a driving course as an alternative to paying a fine and having penalty points on their driving license. 
Uh, the bill would amend the Road Traffic Offenders in Northern Ireland Order 1996 to put this scheme on a statutory footing. The legislation will provide a power to charge fees for courses and a power to make regulations. We've been working uh, very closely with the Policing Board, BSNI, Department of Finance and other relevant stakeholders on the application of the provisions to Northern Ireland. Fees charged for the courses in Northern Ireland are greater than the running costs and this bill would permit the, the excess fee to be used for a particular purpose connected with the imposition of the fee, which is the promotion of road safety. We're separately in discussion with the Department of Finance with a view to seek an agreement on how that would work in practice. So, uh, just to conclude on these two sets of provisions, uh, the Minister considers it appropriate that all of these amendments are enacted within the Westminster Bill. The changes to the Crime Overseas Production Orders Act are technical amendments to the original provisions that were already enacted by Westminster. Uh, and then putting indoors in a statutory footing will formalise what is already happening in practice and ensure consistency across the UK. Plus, it opens up the opportunity for us uh, to seek to use excess fees for the purposes of promoting road safety, subject to the outcome of the discussions that are uh, still underway with the Department of Finance. Uh, so, Chair, I'd be happy to take questions on these provisions now, or I can hand over to Brian, maybe just to um, complete uh, the introductory briefing. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll go to Brian if he wants to just, for completeness sake, do his bit.
reciprocal provision had been made to allow the courts in England and Wales or Scotland to vary an equivalent law and iron order, the Sexual Offences Prevention Order, SOPOS, um, the Risk of Sexual Harm Orders, ROSHOs, and the Foreign Travel Order, FTO. That this bill would contain provisions to close this legislative gap. These reciprocal provisions, combined with those which allow for the recognition of new Scotland and Scottish orders in Northern Ireland, should ensure a more consistent and effective management of sex offenders across UK jurisdictions, enhancing and strengthening public safety. Um, just to summarise, the provisions of the bill being made on the foot of the Scot Scottish uh, plans will, will help avoid the legislative gap in cross jurisdictional management and enforceability of civil probation orders for sex offenders. Specifically, the provision to ensure that order can be varied, discharged, or enforced by respective jurisdictions, regardless of where in the UK it has been made. And this is seen to be critical for managing sex offenders who clearly can move, move within um, UK jurisdictions. These variations and discharge powers will enable courts to tailor an order's condition to better suit the new environment. So if we are a, a sexual offender moves to another jurisdiction, uh, and there were previous you know, restrictions, those restrictions can be varied to make sure they're appropriate to the new location. Uh, the proposed new bridge powers will be also be imperative to, 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 uh, for effective law enforcement management. So I think that's perhaps much I want to say at the moment. Um, up until so I'm very happy to answer any questions on any aspects of, of these proposals. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Maura. Um, a couple of procedural questions for me first, and then a, a couple on substantive points. Um, usually, the LCM comes forward um, whenever the final amending stage at Westminster is, is about to be concluded. So, obviously, this one's being brought forward much earlier than that. Is there a reason why the department's seeking the approval of an LCM at this stage of? The process at Westminster? I think Chair just responded to the request that we got from uh, directly the, the Home Office and, and Ministry of Justice Ministers to ask for confirmation for the date of introduction that um, we had sought the agreement of um, our committee and the executive uh, to, to bring forward a list consent motion uh, memorandum. But obviously, the further stages that will need to be gone through, and, and we need to be a debate on the motion in the assembly. Um, probably, I think that's likely to be sometime in February. Okay, so th this is more seeking a, a view of the committee in principle as opposed to the substantive. LCM because obviously that would have to come at the appropriate stage so that members of the assembly knew what exactly it was they were giving consent to. Yes, I am. Um, uh, however, as well, that we don't yet have a final draft of the bill uh, that's been introduced. We've seen drafts of clauses, but um, as I understand, those are still been worked on. So I think uh, we wouldn't expect uh, anything more than that at this stage, given you have that side of the, the relevant provisions. Yeah, okay. No, that, that's helpful to know that. Um, in terms of the, uh, the driving-related aspects of this and the fees, do we know how much the current fee is to complete one of the courses or the, the training aspect? I think that's currently set at £84. And is that uh, an, that's in excess of the cost of administering and providing the course? Is there a reason for that? Yeah, I think... Uh, and so we can't 
I'm going to um, Sharon to make sure that she doesn't have any issues but um, my understanding is that the rationale is that um, the, the fee should be set at a level that is in excess of the cost of, of administering it and that also the fee um, shouldn't be um, lower than the penalty that someone could attract if they were to take the, the fine and the penalty points. But there's nothing Okay, so it's it's a it's a combination of cost recovery plus an element of penalty associated with the offence. Yes. Okay, and the fees have been in place since the scheme was introduced in twenty ten. Um, so in terms of bringing forward changes to the fees, is there another way to do that through the current legal framework in Northern Ireland as opposed to doing it by way of an LCM? Um, I think, and I think this is the case across the UK, there is currently no legal footing for this particular scheme and I think it was actually um, the Home Office who had flagged that a few years ago and proposed that um, we wouldn't put a scheme in place. So I think the, the thinking is that we don't have something that we could use for that purpose at the moment. Uh, this is all just done uh, on an administrative basis as, as far as I'm aware. Okay. Um, and then in terms of the ability of the Assembly to legislate for this, I assume that's something that's been considered by the Department of Justice. Do you want to just give me a very brief summary as to, to why the LCM is the most appropriate vehicle? Is it purely down to speed or is it also anything to do with jurisdictional issues and devolution and so on? I think it's really speeded response. I think technically we could do this through the assembly, but it, it seemed to us to make sense given that the scheme is identical across the UK to take this opportunity and, and use this vehicle. Um, it also ensures that the legislation is, is as consistent as possible um, for all of the participating jurisdictions. Okay. Okay, Moira, thank you. I'll bring in other members at this stage. Um, Linda Dillon. We just make sure, Linda, you're unmuted there. Um, we, we haven't picked you up just yet. Can you me now, Yes, thank you, Linda. We can hear you okay now. Uh, apologies, Sad. Um, just before I start, I would like to reciprocate your remarks to the beginning of the meeting and, and want to wish everybody a happy new year, the officials and everybody on the committee and our committee staff. Um, and hopefully this will not be as challenging as last year, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't count on it. Just a, a couple of questions in relation to just to clarify again the surplus at the moment in relation to those who avail of the driver of the retraining scheme has to be returned to Treasury. This legislation will ensure that that, that is used for um, schemes here or initiatives here around road safety. Is, is that right? That's the intention. It will give us the power to allow it to be retained here, but uh, as I mentioned in the opening comments, um, we're still discussing the detail of how that would work with the Department of Finance because they have an approval role here. Um, but yeah, the intention would be it would have to be used for the purposes of uh, announcing road safety initiatives, and uh, that's why we've been engaged with the Road Safety Partnership and the, the organisations represented on it. Okay. And just then, in relation to the, the best place to carry out the, the operations 
NTSA have been identified. I'm just wondering what that was based on and who will be responsible for authorising the OPOs? Um, yes, I think um, that's in relation to the overseas production orders and yeah. the events that have been made in that respect. Um, the, the, if I can, uh, I mean the uh, authorisation of the, take your second question first, um, the authorisation of the orders would be by uh, a Crown Court judge in Northern Ireland. Uh, and that's really the same process as, as currently exists in relation to the usual uh, legal assistance route. Um, the NTAC um, were, cho were chosen um, in relation to the capacity that they have to provide secure, um, a secure route for this very sensitive data which could be used in criminal prosecution cases. Um, uh, they, they already have um, that, uh, that level of security required to transmit the information, the data from this country to uh, for example, the United States um, and the agreement that the UK has signed with the United States uh, makes reference to the need for a very secure, uh, a very secure um, arrangement for the transmission of that data, mainly from the US to the UK, as you have, because in, in most of these cases it will be a US company, for example, um, Google or uh, some other social media companies that would, would that would be expected to provide the UK with the information. Okay. And can I just ask what, what would happen or what would the next steps be if, if the legislative consent motion um, was not granted? I'm not suggesting that it wouldn't, I'm just, I'm just asking the question. I think in relation to that specific element of it, it would mean that um, those seeking the information would have to make a dual application because I think we'd explain to the committee when uh, we'd come to you on the act previously that. This is kind of a streamlined version of what already happens. So there are routes at the moment um, to obtain this information, but this just streamlines it and makes it easier for it to be dealt with through a single application. Sorry, sorry, Linda, you might have been muted again. Yeah. Just to say thank you to the officials for their answers and thank you to your secretary for allowing in. Okay, no problem. Um, uh, Rachel Woods and then Sinead Bradley. Thank you, thank you, Chair, and yes, Happy New Year to everybody. Feels like um, a lifetime ago that it was 2020. <laughs> um, I just have a number of questions on the um, the data agreement. You'd mentioned there um, about the agreement signed between the UK and US. Is that the designated international cooperation agreement? And when was that signed? It's, uh, it's the agreement on data access is the terminology that, that I have. Um, and um, just let me get the dates for you. So, in effect, in effect, it has 
That was my understanding. Thank you. No, that was my understanding. It hadn't gone through Congress yet, so I just was wondering how that would actually play out if it hadn't passed the houses in in the states. But um, in terms of the, the this, this the amendments in this act, how and now given where we are with Brexit, how does this um, operate with in GDPR? And is there oversight mechanisms within this um, to ensure you know that the data is transferred? Um, and accessed in compliance with GDPR? I think within data protection legislation there are existing exemptions in relation to material that's for the purposes of uh, investigation or, or prosecution of crimes. So I think that probably covers that aspect in terms of, of GDPR. Okay. Um, that's fine. Um, in terms of the the driving um, sort of offender um, scheme, and appreciate that you probably you had mentioned that you don't have the detail in terms of how the funds would be allocated and administered, and that would be subject to further discussions with the Department of Finance. But would the PCSPs be um, involved in that? Because they already have quite a big role in administering funds for road safety schemes. Um, so I'm just wondering if they would be would be involved in that. That's certainly something we could um, engage with the Road Safety Partnership on, just to say I'm not familiar with um, uh, whether they're already using PCSPs uh, as part of the, the delivery of, of their schemes, but um, that's something we'd be happy to pick up. No, that's great, thank you. Um, and just then, with regard to the consultation, um, I did say, it said in, the, in our pack that uh, Policing Board and the PSNI are content um, with with this proposal, but has any other consultation been done? Yes, we consulted with the Northern Ireland Courts and Tribunal Service with the Department of Infrastructure and also the Office of Police Ombudsman for Northern Ireland. Okay, Chair, thank you. Okay, thank you, Rachel. Um, Sinead Bradley. Thank you, Chair, and Happy New Year, all. Um, yeah, just that point, go back to that point about um, the data access agreement with the United States of America. You know, it does say here that it enables the UK law enforcement and criminal justice agencies to access information held by service providers who process, create, or communicate data on behalf of UK persons. Now, Am I, is it fair to say that actually that's one piece of an access agreement and the scope would be much broader? Um, so the LCM is being sought. Is it big into a wider piece? Am I clear on that? No, no I, I think the, the LCM is being sought on a narrower piece in relation to the COCO Act. Um, the, I'm, I'm not aware of the of everything that's in the, the data access agreement, but I suspect, as you say, the data access agreement is much wider than the one that, that relates to the COCO Act. So okay. it's, just the, it's just the amendments to the COCO Act in 2019 okay. with, with, with relation to the LCM. Okay, so I appreciate that. So imagine, yeah, so the, the access agreement would be much wider and taking things potentially like health service and data there, but I'll not elaborate on that. So then honing into the criminal justice agencies part of it that the LCM is seeking, um, 
what is the receptor? I, I can understand what you're saying about it nowadays, you know, it's an obvious and um, grab, I suppose, the likes of Google or nowadays big um, organizations who may be US based. Is there an example of a reciprocal arrangement, the effect this will have from UK to US? I'm actually not aware of any UK-based company, any, any significant UK-based company that, that, that would be affected by this. Uh, I think all of the examples that we can think of in relation to the social media are companies that um, are located um, in the US largely, in terms of being based in the US. Okay. So, so yes, so the interpretation then of communicated electronic data um, is data holding? I, I was just trying to, yeah, I just thought maybe I was missing something there. No, that's fine. Um, so I'm not overthinking it then. The electronic data is about the profiling, the holding of the profiling of a person, as well as how, how they have exchanged information. Okay, thank you, Jack. Yeah, sorry. Okay, thank you, Sinead. Um, okay, members. Uh, in terms of where we're at then, Moira, if you can just clarify for me, you're wanting to get an indication around the in principle of the LCM, but not on the substance yet, because we haven't got that. Um, I know the department's been engaging with the business office around the LCM being tabled in the assembly. Are, are you able to be more specific as to the time frame for, for this decision that you need? Um, I think until we know definitively what the proposed introduction date is for the bill. Um, we're, we're just sort of working on the basis of uh, the visual timetable at the moment. Um, I also mindful that the uh, request, a similar request to, to the local committee has gone to today's executive meeting, so we need to see the outcome of that. Um, but I think in terms of next steps, um, assuming the bill is introduced next week, which is what is currently looking likely, uh, we would then um, consult with the Executive Office on, on the wording of the LCM memorandum um, and then um, seek our Minister's approval to, to lay that. Um, we would then have to lay that up with the Business Office, probably commencing on the 25th of January, um, and then go first off for a debate, um, which I'm anticipating it might be around about we commence the 8th of February, but we can certainly um, confirm the timeline once we have further dates. Okay. Um, I suppose it did just make sure you're factoring in the committee has to do its work and provide a report to the Assembly on our position on the LCM, so that obviously will need to be taken into account around your time frame. Um, you know, if the department's going to proceed with the LCM, and the executive give the go-ahead for that, well then that's fine. Obviously, you know, that'll be an indicator that the committee are going to go down that route as well. So probably your first staging post on this is the executive approval for the LCM approach, then come to the committee, um, and we will then need to do our work on it. And certainly, Chair, if there's any further clarification need from us once um, we have the text of the bill, in that would assist you in producing that report. Obviously, we're, we're happy to make ourselves available or to, to provide written briefing as, as you need us to. Okay, well, if, you, if the department can formally come to the committee once the minister has navigated this through the executive, 
then it's at that point that the committee will, will take its decision in respect of um, supporting the LCM or otherwise, and then we're able to scrutinise it. Um, that, that, to me, seems to be the best way to go forward. Okay. Is there any other comments members want to make at that stage, or, or, or is the committee content that we've noted this briefing, that the department will come to the committee upon its work with the executive, and then the committee will take its position around the substance of the LCM? Are members agreed with that approach? Okay, agreed. Um, Moira, you're going to stay on for the next item on the agenda, and some of your team, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll introduce you in a moment once I provide members with an update. So item five on the agenda has the relevant papers. It's around the Police Service uh, Injury Benefit Regulations at our meeting on the 17th of December. Um, uh, folks can all just m mute. It's probably the, the department noise I'm hearing coming through. Um, at our meeting on the 17th of December, the committee considered a proposal for a statutory rule to amend various instruments relating to the police service. If the, if the broadcasting team could take the department out for a moment. Thank you. Um, so at our meeting members on the 17th of December, the committee considered a proposal for a statutory rule to amend the various instruments that relate to the PSNI um, and the PSNI Reserve Injury Benefit Regulations 2006. There were a number of concerns raised by members, including whether the proposal will result in changes to actual payments, if it will provide a vehicle, uh, if it will provide a vehicle to make changes in the future, and if it is consistent with similar schemes in other jurisdictions across the UK. And the committee agreed that departmental officials should attend the meeting today to provide further information on the proposal. The committee also requested copies of responses to the consultation on the proposals. Um, the relevant papers, including the consultation responses and responses to the issues raised by members, are pages 15 to 28 of your meeting pack. And we have officials then with us via the Starley facility. So again, um, Moira, you're going to lead from the department's point of view on this. And I think it's uh, William Duglo who's also joining you. So Moira. Thank you, sir. Um, it's William Duglo. I'm taking the lead in terms of the, the opening remarks. Uh, so what I'd like to do is to provide some context and background in relation to the legislation and seek to address the issues which were raised by members at the committee meeting on the 17th of December. So the amendments to the PSNI and PSNI Reserve Injury Benefit Regulations 2006 will help to ensure that the PSNI Injury on Duty Scheme works more effectively and equitably for officers regardless of which police net a pension scheme they belong to. By way of background, every PSNI officer is entitled to an injury on duty award if they're permanently disabled because of an injury received on duty. The injury benefit is payable on the basis that it's a minimum income guarantee that is designed to supplement an officer's income and should therefore be reduced to take account of police pension or of certain benefits awarded in respect of the same injury. Due to oversight following the introduction of the 2015 Police Pension Scheme, members of the 2015 scheme who are in receipt of an injury on duty award do not currently have the award offset against their police pension. And so they receive, in effect, an enhanced award as compared to officers who are members of the 1988 and 2006 pension schemes. The 
worked on interim and duty schemes for officers in the PSNI and the Northern Ireland Prison Service, which was published uh, last year, identified this anomaly and recommended that the 2006 regulations be amended as soon as possible to allow for any interim on duty award to be offset against their 2015 pension. These regulations in front of us today contain provisions for doing this and effectively mean that the 2015 pension scheme will be aligned to match the interaction that the other two schemes already have with the police interim duty scheme. The regulations will also allow for some technical updates relating to Employment Support Alliance, ESA. An earlier amendment determined that from the 1st of April 2007, the amount of injury on duty award received by a person who is also in receipt of the ESA must be reduced by the amount of that ESA award. However, this is now being amended to reflect circumstances, specific circumstances, where there has been a previous reduction of an individual's injury award on the basis of entitlement to incapacity benefit, and post-retirement, the individual has a subsequent new entitlement to ESA. In these circumstances, no reduction in, the, in respect of ESA will occur. Finally, the regulations will also make consequential amendments to the Police Pensions Regulations Northern Ireland 2015 to ensure that deferred members of the 2015 scheme, who also accrue benefits under an earlier pension scheme, cannot suffer any detriment when their entitlement to benefits is calculated. So, if I may, Chair, now I can turn to the issues raised by members on 17th of December and with regard to this legislation. Members asked whether the proposed rule will change actual payments. The rule will allow a reduction in the amount of injury payment, injury benefit paid if a police pension is also payable under the 2015 pension scheme. So this creates a level playing field with those officers in the 1988 and 2006 pension schemes and implements the Northern Ireland Audit Office recommendation. The amendment impacts on a relatively small number of officers. The pension administrator has advised that 33 members are currently in receipt of an injury under the award, which includes a 2015 pension element. While each injury on duty award is unique to the officer concerned, depending on their circumstances, the PSNI have provided a typical example where the current IOD award of around 14,600 per annum will be corrected to 12,300 pounds per annum to account for the offset relating to the 2015 scheme. So that's a reduction of approximately 190 pounds per month. Subject to the committee's approval of these regulations, the offset will only be applied once the new rule comes into operation and will be implemented on a point-forward basis. So that's to say, it will not be retrospectively applied to payments already made, and those officers affected will be informed in advance by the pension administrator. Members also queried whether the legislation will provide a vehicle to make changes in the future. This rule will not provide that vehicle to make changes in the future. The regulations purely amend the PSNI and PSNI Reserve Injury Benefit Regulations 06 to ensure that the offset rules for injury on duty award will now be applied in the same way to all three pension schemes in line with the Audit Office recommendation. The Department, working with the Department of Finance, uh, the Policing Board and PSNI, is currently reviewing the whole injury on duty scheme as recommended by the Audit Office. 
Permanent review is complete. The department will consult on any changes which may be proposed, which include any possible change to the legislation. Finally, members also inquired as to whether the rule is consistent with similar schemes across the UK. So similar legislation has been introduced in England and Wales under the Police and Firefighters Pensions Amendments Regulations 2018 and in Scotland under the Police Pensions Miscellaneous Amendments Scotland Regulations 2019. This amendment to our legislation will bring the injury on duty scheme in Northern Ireland into line with the equivalent police schemes in Great Britain. So my colleagues and I would be very happy to answer any further questions the committee may have. Okay, thank you. Um, I think the Deputy Chair of the Committee, Linda Dillon, has indicated a question. Just one very quick question, I'll some more for clarity. Thank you for the, for the presentation, and I think that's probably more or less straightforward enough. Just in relation to the, the ESA issue, is that where, where incapacity is, they're no longer entitled to incapacity, they become entitled to ESA, but for the same injury? I'm just wondering then why it isn't taken into account. When the entry on duty award is calculated, they will take into account. They will have taken into account an employment. Uh, oh, sorry, an entry uh, an capacity benefit award. Um, and it's really just to provide clarity so that if they subsequently claim um, ESA for a different um, for something different then that will not be taken off the entry uh, the entry on duty because it's a different thing that they're applying for. Okay. It, could be a it could be a different entry or um, a different disability or it could be something completely unrelated to the entry on duty um, entry on duty benefit if you want to put it in Yes, I suppose that's what I'm trying to clarify. Is it the case that, that it's only not taken into account where that is where that is the case where it is a non an, an illness or a health problem that is unrelated to the to this original injury? Really what they're saying here is where somebody has already had their injury on duty award have the incapacity benefit side that's already accounted for in the injury on duty award. We won't look at it again if there's an ESA, if they convert from the injury, sorry, from the incapacity to the ESA, because we've already looked at that part of that benefit. So when they were looking, when they were actually assessing how much the person was going to get, at that point in time it would have been incapacity benefit. It's just that when people have been moved from incapacity to ESA, they're not going to re-look at revisit the claim because they've moved from incapacity to um, ESA. Sorry, uh, so just maybe final point just for, for clarity, but I think I think you have just actually cleared it up, but just to be sure. So what will happen is the deduction in relation to incapacity benefit will continue. Yes, but it's yeah. part of it. it's part of the award that the amount of That's fair enough, you know, that, that, that's, that's absolutely fine. Thank you, thank you, Chair. Thank you, Linda. Uh, Paul Frew. Yeah, just on that point then, I suppose, and if you can clear up some confusion for me then, so 
ASA is not the same as PIP, so how then does that affect PIP, uh, especially if the personnel involved are have obtained PIP for another reason other than the actual injury on duty? It would really depend. They would be, whenever the entry on duty award is being considered by the policing board, they would look at um, the medical examiner would look at the reasons for which they are being awarded the entry on duty. Um, an officer would be required to apply for an uh, for ASA. Um, for that injury, or um, if he's applying for something else, um, I would suggest that the board would take that into account. The fact that if it's not related to the injury on duty, then it isn't an issue for them. You know, they want to make an award for something for which it's nothing to do with their placing. So, if, if you were to apply, if you were an officer uh, and was injured on duty and then had to apply for PIP, uh, the way PIP would work is both daily living, activity and mobility. And it's about points that you would get or obtain through a spectrum of questions and scenarios. So it's not actually related to your physical injury. It's related to how your injuries or your illnesses affect you. So how could you how can you be sure? Because there there are many people out there with multiple uh, problems with their health. So how can uh, a body, whether it be the policing board or anyone else for that matter, attribute points from PIP to the actual injury sustained on duty? I think that's one for a, um, for a medical. Uh, I couldn't tell you how that would be appointed simply because it's a medical decision. You know, it's based on and it's a decision that the board would take into account whenever they're making that decision. But, but um, yeah, but, but but PIP changes on a periodically uh, on periodic time spaces. So you could be rewarded a PIP uh, payment. And in three years' time, you would have to re that would be reviewed, which can change dramatically. Which then means the person has to go to appeal, which then could be changed dramatically, uh, because then you're into a completely in you're into an independent board. Now, there's a medical practitioner who sits on those boards, but there's also laypersons and also a legal expert. So, so it's not purely a medical decision what someone should get or obtain through PIP. I think in terms of how injury on duty awards are made, um, they're, they're made through assessment by a selected medical practitioner um, who, who would provide a report to the board. Um, that practitioner would take into account a whole range of evidence and information in relation to um, that officer's medical condition. If, if the officer's medical condition ch change or um, uh, other material information changed in relation to uh, to, to, to the um, calculation. Uh, that officer is entitled to request a reassessment of, of, of his case. Okay. Um, uh, and that would even be without that would be outside the appeals process. So anyway, yeah. he, he would be he or she would be entitled to a reassessment based on any changed circumstances. So, so there is an ongoing process there whereby someone can go back. Uh, and, and, and mitigate against or change 
aspects of a injury on duty claim? That's, that's correct, if there's a material change. Right, okay. That, that sums it up. Uh, so there may be some confusion here. Uh, again, I, I, I was one of the ones, along with Doug, I think it was, who who wanted more information on this. Uh, through your letter that was sent uh, on the 11th of January uh, from the department, uh, you talk about a steering group led by the department to take forward all the recommendations of the audit office report uh, has been established and the committee was provided with an action plan in September for that. A subgroup has been established to review specifically the PSNI injury and duty scheme and it is currently considering a range of issues including the provisions for review and reassessment of cases and the backdating of injury on duty awards. So in doing so the subgroup is working in parallel with another subgroup led by the Department of Finance which is reviewing the civil service injury benefit scheme and that you guys are going to report to this committee I believe in February on those proposed changes. Can, can you outline to me why that steering group and, and those changes, whatever they're going to be and whatever you propose, is necessary when you've got this, this procedure here that we're talking about today? Why is the need for a parallel process in this regard? Um, the the office reports um, indicated uh, a wide range of recommendations which the Minister has accepted. Uh, one of those was for a fundamental review of the injury duty scheme, which is what the steering group and subgroups are dedicated to doing. Um, in line and in common with the Department of Finance approach, um, we've uh, decided upon a two-phase approach. Um, this is also in line with the recommendation in the audit office report which indicated that the offset issues which effectively we're dealing with in this legislation um, are particularly urgent and needed to be legislated for in the, in, in, in the short term. Um, that, that's why we're bringing forward this, this legislation now in the shorter term as phase one. That phase two will be a fuller examination and review of the entire scheme. And that will take some more time. It's likely to be, we'll be providing a progress report to the committee next month. But it's likely to be the end of, uh, the end of next year, beginning of uh, 2020, sorry, the end of this year, beginning of 2022, before we have that, before, uh, if we do propose any change to the legislation, that would be brought before the committee. So there's quite a time, there's quite a, a difference in time scales between phase one and phase two. So I think it was recommend, recommendation, sorry it is because I see it in front of me here, I've just found it, recommendation four from that audit report and I read, Department of Justice, Department of Finance and Northern Ireland Policing Board should take action in the short term to mitigate the issues arising within the current schemes. This should include timely amendments to legislation to resolve offset issues. What does offset issues actually entail? The, the offset issues legislation, which is to ensure that the, um, the 2015 pension scheme uh, is off, sorry, that, that members of the 2015 pension scheme will have their pensions um, offset against any intergovernmental award, in the same way as all members of all other schemes currently have their pension offset against that, uh, any awards that they may receive. 
So that's really what the offset means. Right. So, so I can understand then why you've you've prompted, you've moved fast on that recommendation. Um, but it also that recommendation also talks about ensuring for any future regulation or sorry legislation to facilitate payments to individuals who also receive uh, injury and uh, duty awards, including offset provisions for example the impending victims payment scheme. So does this what you're proposing here today in front of the committee? Does that then also offset future provision? No, no, no. Uh, it, it doesn't within within this legislation. Um, we uh, are taking the view that we would need to consider as part of the full um, and fundamental review of the injury country scheme what other what other um, elements might need to be offset against it uh, against an award. Um, um, that includes issues which require a fair amount of work on uh, consideration, including private compensation, for example and the potential for private, com can private compensation, if awarded, to be offset uh, against an injury or duty award. That's quite a, um, that's a rather more thorny issue, and it's one that uh, I know that colleagues in the Department of Finance are also grappling with. I should say, as I pointed out at the start, the Department of Finance is also engaged in a two-phase process in, in, in a similar way to us, and, and they're taking into consideration private compensation in phase two, which we are. So private compensation, victims payment schemes, all of those issues that's ahead of us, is that what the steering group that you're talking about, which is working in parallel, are grappling with? Yes, amongst many other issues, yes. Yeah, I think that um, these matters that we're talking about today are part of the overall action plan. Uh, that's been overseen by the steering group. And the reason we have a steering group, which is so groups that look outside is very bureaucratic, but the steering group um, brings together um, the lead officials who look at both the um, police scheme and also the NICS scheme, which includes provision for prison officers. And then because they're two separate schemes, the subgroups sit beneath that. But we thought it would be useful to have a steering group bringing both together because one of the findings of the audit office report was. There's slight differences here and there between the two schemes, and the audit office recommended we seek to um, try and align the two schemes so there's consistency between them. So that's why we've been working very closely with the Department of Finance so that what we're doing is in line with the, the direction of travel that they're going in as well. Which, which nearly gets me on to my next point, and that is uh, your letter dated the 3rd of December. Uh, I'm not sure the page. Uh, number, but you state that the regulations also allow some minor corrections to the provisions relating to the 1988 and the 2006 police pension schemes and provides for the reduction of the amount of the police injury on duty award. Can you explain to me how you are impacting on the 88 and the 2006 schemes? Scheme actually allows them to do so. It's that kind of 
thing. Um, in terms of things like final pay and how it's calculated, um, it's um, so, trying to check in terms of disablement. Um, so, so when you say when you use terminology tidy ups and the wording of this letter says minor corrections, will any of that will any of that impinge on someone's claim, injury of duty claim or pension? No, it's just it's just making clear to pension administrators how to calculate for us the likes of the transitional members. Um, you know, it, it's talking about somebody who has. Um, membership in the 1988 scheme and has transferred across to the 2015 scheme, you know, it, it's talking about how you would calculate out that particular entry on duty scheme. So, so how, many, how many transitional personnel do we have and what would be the advantage or the rationale for changing, transferring from the 1988 scheme to the 2015 scheme? Um, there is no choice. They have no choice uh, under the common under the common review. Uh, offices were transferred across from the uh, the legacy schemes into the 2015 scheme um, on the 1st of April 2015. Um, about two thirds of the offices and others have um, are transitioning along the way, but this is the basis of the McLeod, um, of the McLeod uh, judgment and um, really all these uh, amendments are doing is smoothing the path until the McLeod judgment um, has been resolved. Okay, thanks very much Chair, thank you. There's a number 33 members that are impacted by this, in the 2015 scheme. At least that's, that's the basis of your report that I've read, that it relates. this relates to 33 people. Sorry, William or someone, is, is that the figure? So, yeah. Yes, uh, Chair, it's, it's 33 officers that are affected by the... Okay. Uh, okay. Um, so is there any other members need to raise anything? Oh, sorry, Rachel Woods and Sinead, your hand is raised, but that's maybe from last time, so I'll not call you if it stays. Yeah, okay, thank you, Sinead. Um, Rachel? Thanks, Chair. And it was just to, to tease out just a little bit more in terms of the question over PIP. Um, so is PIP, I suppose, just to straight into the question, what I'm trying to get at is, does PIP, do PIP awards come into consideration as as income for the purposes of this award? I, I think we I think we'd have to get back to you on that. Um, I'm afraid I don't have the answer to that. Okay, that I think that's maybe what what I can't speak for anybody else, but you're trying to get at, which is that PIP is not. Um, it doesn't take into consideration your income, whereas ESA does in terms of income-related and contribution-based. So if PIP was a problem, I would certainly welcome some information about why that was was being in consideration um, by the policing board in, in, in making an injury on duty award, um, because it's not based on your income, it's based on your daily living, um, as we know, and, and, and it's not a medical exam, which despite 
what we, we have to deal with. It's not supposed to be a medical exam. Um, so certainly welcome some clarity, just that PIP is not taken into consideration when these awards are being made. Thank you. Okay, members, if there's no other points of clarity that's needed, um, if members are content then with the proposed statutory rule, unless further information is required, are members content? Agreed? Okay. Okay, thank you, um, William, um, for that. Okay, members, we'll move on to agenda item six. And if broadcasting just drop out the department, that would be great. Thank you. Um, item six then, members, is the Criminal Justice Bill, uh, the Delegated Powers Memorandum. So pages 75 to 112, reading pack. The department has provided uh, the further information requested during the oral evidence session on the reform bill on the 5th of November, including a list of all the offences that are tribal uh, only on indictment and details of all the repeal provisions included in the bill. So members, it's there for noting unless there's further information at this stage. Uh, just also on this issue, the department has provided a delegated powers memorandum which identifies provisions in the bill which confer powers to make delegated legislation and outlines the reason for taking each power and the nature of it. Uh, to assist the committee's consideration of the delegated powers in the bill, normal practice would be to forward the memorandum to the examiner for statutory rules to seek her views on whether it's appropriate for each of the powers outlined in the memorandum to be left to subordinate legislation rather than being included in the bill itself and whether the choice of assembly control provided for each power is the most appropriate. So if members are content, uh, we'll agree to, defer, to refer the delegated powers memorandum to the assembly examiner of stat rules for a report highlighting, any, highlighting issues that the committee may, may wish to consider. Thank you, Linda. If members are content, then we'll move on. Um, just the closing date for written evidence on this bill is tomorrow, and uh, there'll be an update on the submission received uh, provided for the meeting then next week for our consideration. So item seven, members, um, pages 114 to 120, the department is proposing to make a stat rule to amend order 97 of the rules of the court of judicature to enable applications in non-contentious probate cases to be made online and for the sworn affidavit to be replaced with the statement of truth along with changes to the marking of exhibits. The rule is required to progress part of the modernisation project in the Northern Ireland Courts and Tribunal Service. The department anticipates that it will reduce the time taken to process applications and contribute to increasing efficiency within the justice system. The proposed statutory rule is subject to negative resolution procedure. <coughs> so if members are content with the proposed statutory rule, then we can agree to that unless there's any further information needed. Um, Okay, I have a couple of members, um, Gemma Dolan and then Rachel Woods. Gemma? Yeah, thanks, Chair. Um, just actually want to welcome this because um, reading comments, it's the furthest away from both Belfast and Derry, so it can prove rather convenient for some people. Just um, a couple of questions. Why is there a current requirement to travel to Belfast and Derry for an interview? And why will this allow be required? And then what's the difference between a sworn affidavit and a statement of truth? And will there be any legal implications of this change? Okay, thank you, Gemma. Um, we'll take note of these points of clarity because we will raise it with the department. Um, Rachel? Thank you. Yep, Gemma, mine was quite similar in terms of why is there a requirement to travel. Um, it seems a bit 
yeah, a bit odd, but certainly um, another question is um, how are non-contentious cases identified? Is there a process and will this affect it? And the final one then is on the financial implications. Um, it said that there was none at this stage in the statutory rule. Does that mean that there's consideration of charging for it in the future? And if so, why? Um, and it was in line with the Northern Ireland Courts and Tribunals Civil Fee Review. Um, but why would we be charging for something that can be emailed, which is free? So it's just if those things are being considered. Okay, and Sinead Bradley. Yes, Chair, just a matter of concerns around um, just to find out the charging as well, if there's any charging on this, um, because and who has the authority to make that determination? Not only the determination whether it's contentious or not, but who has the authority to make the determination? Okay, well, members, if you're agreeable, then we will um, write to the department seeking clarity on that. We'll get the written response for members' consideration and then uh, decide on the way forward upon receipt of same. Members are happy with that approach. Agreed. Uh, Agreed. Item 8 then is proposals for a new legal framework for the setting of the personal injury discount rate. And just to update members in this area, pages 122 to 157. The department has provided further information on the effect of extending the notional timeline for the portfolio in the Scottish model and a sample case to demonstrate the impact for an individual based on different outcomes following the oral evidence session held on the 3rd of December. The department has also corrected the information provided by officials during that session to confirm that one of the four pre-action protocol letters does in fact refer to the recusal uh, as the minister uh, fettering her discretion. The committee also wrote to the Minister of Finance and he has responded indicating that he's advised the Chief Secretary to the Treasurer that should the proposals regarding uh, the personal injury discount rate result in a budget pressure, access to the reserve would be sought in line with that afforded to Whitehall departments and other devolved administrations on this issue. Um, following the evidence session on the 3rd of December, the committee advised the department that it hadn't been persuaded at this time by the information provided that the legislation to set a new legal framework should proceed by way of accelerated passage, but willing to engage and discuss the legislative timeline to progress this legislation before the end of the mandate. The Department has again uh, stated uh, that it remains convinced accelerated passage legislation is necessary and believes that this is achievable before summer 2021. The committee also wrote uh, to the department following consideration of a press release from the Association of Personal Injury Lawyers regarding a legal challenge against the decision not to change the rate at the meeting on the 17th of December. And the committee asked that in light of the legal challenge and the views expressed during the committee's discussions on the issue, the permanent secretary intends to review his decision not to change the rate at this time. Our response members on this issue is due by the end of the week. Um, so. Uh, members, if you're content, we will consider this when we get a response from the Permanent Secretary. It is also one of the issues that I've asked we discuss when the Minister and the Permanent Secretary meet with us next Tuesday. Uh, and I intend to ask just a couple of questions to get an update on that. So uh, that hopefully will give some more information. Um, when we get the written response, we'll come back to this issue if members are content with that approach. Agreed? Okay, thank you. Uh, Item t 9 then is the correspondence. There's 14 items of correspondence at pages 160 to 2650 and let me just highlight a number of them. Uh, item 2 on that list is 
a response from the Minister to issues raised by the Women's Aid Federation regarding proposals for domestic abuse, or sorry, re regarding proposals for a domestic and sexual violence advocacy service. The Minister has indicated she remains of the view provision of a singular service presents the best way forward in delivering an effective advocacy support to victims across Northern Ireland and within the funding that may be available. The singular service approach was chosen because of the intrinsic link between both domestic and sexual violence and abuse, and also because of the commonality in the specifics of the advocacy role proposed for the new service. Uh, the Department engaged, uh, it says, significantly with a range of key voluntary sector organisations representing the interests of victims and consulted with existing support service workers employed by both Women's Aid and Victim Support when developing the new advocacy service. It did not engage directly with victims of domestic and or sexual violence and abuse. So, members, that response is there um, for noting. If you're agreeable, we will forward that response to the Women's Aid Federation uh, that had raised the issues with us. Mr. Frey. Yeah, just uh, on this point, I'm still very nervous about the approach taken by the department. Um, they have they have engaged with most stakeholders, if not all, uh, but yet most stakeholders still are very nervous, and in fact, some of them are quite concerned uh, about this issue, um, the universal nature of it, the all population role. And in the actual tendering process itself have all been issues that have been raised with me. Some people would argue that these are these are very specific, dedicated roles, both in domestic violence and then also sexual abuse. You then also have issues around age range, uh, both male and female also. So there, there is massive issues here and it doesn't bode well that the department will pursue uh, a route that seems to be the case that a lot of the stakeholders and the operational staff around these issues are not content and happy with. Now, with any tendering process, there are going to be winners and losers, don't get me wrong, but even before it ever got to that stage, those stakeholder groups were really deeply concerned about the approach and the direction of travel that the department was taking. Uh, I have voiced my opinions to the department both in this forum and private meetings, um, but yet we have, we have continued down this route. And I fear, I fear for the support that these organisations will be able to give to the victims, and then I, I fear what place the victims will be in with regards to support in the future. I have yet to be convinced that this is the way forward. Thank you. Okay, well, we will forward the response to the Women's Aid Federation. Um, uh, they may wish to come back to the committee, and it may be something the committee wants to, to consider further. And obviously, MLAs are able to raise this with the Minister and the floor of the Assembly as well. But, um, Linda Dillon, you're just wanting to come in. Yeah, yeah um, actually, Chair, you just forwarded it. I think we've, we've forwarded it to them, and, and perhaps maybe we will need to give them an opportunity to have either an informal meeting with the committee or come formally to the committee to have a conversation with us around this. Okay, well, members, we, we have raised this issue with the department as a committee on the back of Women's Aid contacting us. There's a response there. We'll send that to Women's Aid um, and, and they can consider the nature of that and have no doubt that they will follow it up with no. contacts with members and whether there's a committee issue to, to continue to pursue this or individual members through various different means, 
um, that's something that we can consider. Could I add to that, Chair? Would it be right for us to maybe engage with PSNI on this issue? Because at one time when I spoke to PSNI around all of this, they were quite nervous about it. Um, I'm wondering, can we uh, forward the response and the concerns of the Womsia to them for... for now maybe it's unfair, maybe they won't want to uh, respond, but even just for awareness, would that be in order? Well, let's see if Women's Aid want to follow this up and how best they want to, to try and articulate the concerns that are being raised in it. And then if there's a committee action that subsequently flows from that, then the committee can consider it if members are agreeing. Okay. Um, item five on the correspondence the list then is a response from the department regarding the lack of engagement that the committee had on the health protection regs in respect of offences and penalty. Department stated that it's role generally in relation to offences and penalties created by other Northern Ireland departments is advisory, but decisions on these would be a matter for the relevant minister and it would fall to that department's assembly committee to scrutinise them. The department has not previously brought such matters to the Justice Committee. Uh, the response also states that it would not be appropriate for the department to formally engage the Justice Committee ahead of health officials engaging with the Health Committee as they are health regulations and according to the department, from both a procedure and a practical perspective, justice officials could therefore only engage with the committee after the Health Committee considered the draft regs on Thursday the 26th of November and the Minister wrote to the committee uh, on the 1st of December. The department also advises that it understands no protocol exists for informing the committee when departmental officials are providing oral evidence to another uh, statutory committee. So, members, that's the response in respect of uh, this issue. Um, again, for members' benefit, inf the information originally provided uh, by the department indicated that the changes to offences and fines contained with the regs arose from a collaborative review that was undertaken by the Justice and Health Departments and were proposed by the Justice Minister to the Executive. That, to me, infers more than just an advisory role when it comes to the issue of enforcement and uh, penalty. Um, it would also have been possible for officials to have attended the Justice Committee meeting on the afternoon of Thursday, the 26th of November, to brief members after they had attended the Health Committee, which took place on that morning. So, members, I'm not proposing that we go round in circles in this debate with the Department of Justice. Obviously, either the Department can take a minimalist approach to its engagement with the Committee, or the rules do not prevent it from taking a much more maximal approach when it comes to this issue. That ultimately is the prerogative of the uh, Minister for Justice and how she wishes the Department to engage with us. I think it's this Committee's view that we prefer to be engaged more as opposed to less. So. Um, I, I don't suggest writing back and continuing this issue. We've raised it, we've put it on the record, and we'll note the response from the, the Minister in respect of that issue. If just just on that, to, to echo your sentiments entirely, we are dealing with the most draconian legislation that we've ever had to deal with in our lifetime. It's going to impact on our people, both in a health relation and also in a justice relation. Uh, so a minimalist approach just will not do this committee is here for a reason, and it's to scrutinise legislation. The Assembly Chamber has foregone that uh, responsibility, and that's why we now have regulations coming in and not appearing in the House until weeks after. This committee must be informed 
uh, at all aspects with regards to the Justice Department, its officials and the Minister itself, and a minimalist, minimalist approach just will not cut it. Okay, members. Um, item 6 of the correspondence is a response from the Department providing the action plan and an update on progress to address the findings and recommendations of the CGA or the CGNA report on uh, the child sexual exploitation uh, in Northern Ireland at a meeting on the 10th of September. The committee agreed to consider whether to schedule oral briefings from CGNA inspectors and relevant officials when the action plan was available. So, members, if you're content, we will uh, seek to schedule an oral evidence session um, in respect of this action plan where we can make it available. Agreed. Item 7, uh, there's a response from the Minister of Education providing information on the role of the Department of Education and other educational bodies in advising and educating young people on the criminal law in relation to sexual offences. The Education Minister has outlined that the relationship in sexual education is a compulsory element of curriculum, but it does not require the teaching of a prescribed list of subject content that every school must cover. The Department of Education has provided additional funding to SIA to carry out a review of existing resources and an online RSE hub was launched in June 2019 to facilitate easy access to a range of resources and guidance materials in relation to sexual content on domestic and sexual violence and abuse. Um, so if members are content to note that correspondence, Linda Dillon. Just a very important point, and, and this is an education issue, so I don't intend to, to hold up the, the Justice Committee to be, to be fair, but just to make the point that I accept what the Minister is saying, but it's up to the Board of, of Governors of each school to decide what exactly is delivered within that school, and therefore that can be informative. And some may be getting some really, really good um, education around this stuff, and some not so good, just to be, to be frank about it. Correspondence is a response from the Lord Chief Justice regarding a data breach by the Coroner's Service for Northern Ireland in relation to an inquest into the death of Neil McConville. The Lord Chief Justice has outlined the steps taken by the presiding coroner, Mr Justice Huddleston, uh, when he was made aware of the incident. The LCJ also states that the secure handling of data is essential in all court proceedings to safeguard the data privacy rights of parties and those involved, and the Legacy Inquest Unit takes all of those data breaches he says very seriously. The LCJ also notes that the Minister will be providing information about the steps being taken by the Legacy Inquest Unit in response to the incident. So, members, that correspondence is there um, for your information. Um, we can consider the issue further once we have a response from the Minister, if members are agreeable. Um, if you're agreed, we'll, we will forward a response, the response from the LCJ to the Chairman of the Northern Ireland Retired Police Officers Association as well. Members are agreed. Agreed. Um, item 10 of correspondence then is correspondence from the Ulster University Law Clinic providing the result of a recent survey and the impact of COVID-19 on family courts. The findings from the research highlight a range of issues affecting practitioners and litigants in person and respondents 
stated that courts were being let down by poor technology. Practitioners also reported that it was difficult or impossible to take compliant instructions during remote hearings and physically distanced face-to-face -face hearings and were concerned that this not only meant they might not be acting in their client's best interests, uh, but that the inability to enable client participation had a negative impact on the fairness of the case uh, outcome. So if members are agreed, um, we'll refer the research findings to the courts and tribunal service for a response. I know I've also spoken to my colleague uh, Joanne Bunting about this issue in terms of the courts increasingly asking solicitors to provide space in their own buildings for uh, the online uh, access into courts and of course the issue here of concern for solicitors are many of them are operating in very small buildings themselves and so that is putting them uh, under pressure. So I think this is an issue that you know, um, is, is timely from the law clinic highlighting these issues and we will um, pursue this further with the court service. So members if you're content we'll action then the other items of correspondence as outlined on the cover sheet unless there's any other commentary members wish to make. Okay, thank you. Um, Chairman's business, um, there's been a request for an informal meeting on the proposals for a regional care and justice campus. There's a number of organisations that work with um, and on behalf of young people that experience the care and or justice system have asked for a meeting to outline a range of concerns regarding the proposals to establish such a campus which the Department of Justice and Health are currently consulting uh, on so arrangements can be made for an informal meeting to which all committee members will be invited and if you're available to attend you will be welcome uh, to do so. Um, just another item, there's a research project on the youth justice in Northern Ireland. There's a, a project exploring developments in youth justice since the period of the youth justice review in 2011. That's being undertaken by Queen's University and the University of Nottingham on behalf of a number of children's organisations. Researchers have requested an opportunity to speak to committee members for views on developments in the youth justice and areas uh, for future priorities. So if there's any members wish to do so, if you can contact the committee uh, clerk, then arrangements can be made. Just one final update, members. Um, you will have received or you will receive um, just an update by way of the domestic abuse final stages on Monday. Um, there's an aspect of the training of the PPS that... Um, has provided just somewhat of a, 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 an issue in that it requires then the final stage to be a cross-community uh, vote. Obviously, uh, it isn't a showstopper because um, I don't think there's going to be a division when it comes to the final stage, but procedurally, um, the bill will now be a requirement to have a cross-community uh, vote taken upon it. Um, that's after the Assembly and the Department have looked at the way in which the Justice Act 20, 2002 relate to the independence of the uh, Director of Public Prosecution and the staff within the PPS and the subsequent amendments then that we brought forward in respect of training. Um, so that's just by way of an update as to the procedural voting arrangement that will now take place on Monday. Okay members, I have no other business. Is there any other business members wish to raise at this stage in proceedings? No. no. Okay, then if there's no other business members, um, we have the meeting with the Minister for Justice and the Permanent Secretary next Tuesday the 19th, that's at 12.30pm and it'll be held in room 30 for those who are in the building and obviously the Starley facility will be available for those who aren't in on that occasion.
So members, thank you very much for your attendance and participation today. It's much appreciated. Thank you, members. Thank you. Got to get the broader picture.